Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Our guest on today's podcast is Kevin Lynch, and Kevin is the president, CEO, and founder of the Quell Foundation. Kevin created the Quell Foundation with a mission to reduce the number of suicides, overdoses, and the incarceration of people with a mental illness. The foundation is a nationally acclaimed mental health organization known for turning advocacy into statistical change through its prestigious scholarship program and educational documentary series. The Quell Foundation has also introduced a first responder resiliency project, where their mission is to normalize a new culture for mental wellness in the first responder community by building resilient mindsets at work, home, and into retirement through trusted and proven educational resources. Kevin, Linda, and I are both very excited to have you here. We're looking forward to hear your story about what led you into this work and in the mental health field and everything else that the Quell Foundation is doing. Um, so, yeah, man, we're excited. First, would you please uh, just introduce yourself to our audience? I absolutely will. Jay, uh, Linda, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really psyched to be able to participate in this and love the work that you're doing. Uh, thanks for the honor of uh, sharing this with you. So um, I started the Quell Foundation seven years ago, actually, this month. Um, and the nutshell version, Reader's Digest version, for those of us who are older, um, is essentially when uh, my son my son spent uh, 12 years in prison, uh, did eight years. He was out for 103 days and then uh, was sentenced to another four years for violating the terms of his probation. Um, Nick had a mental health diagnosis. Um, I couldn't get him the help that he needed when he was released yeah, because there's just not enough. As you know, there's just not a, enough clinicians out there, especially those who are culturally competent. I mean, he had spent that 17 and a half years old, um, eight years, six years held in isolation. Um, when he got out, uh, clearly he would have additional challenges. I told him he had to go to college at 26. He thought he was too old. So uh, I moved out of my house with my wife, moved into a small place with Nick. And um, I said, listen, Nick, I'll do it with you. At 49, I'll go do my master's. Uh, and that's what we did. We uh, both applied to school. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Nick, as is often the case, self-medicated um, in the absence of treatment, and uh, he overdosed on heroin. Uh, and because of that, they, they sent him back to prison. Uh, I spiraled. Uh, I actually ended up calling a suicide hotline. Um, fortunately, as a veteran, uh, like yourself, Jay, I was able to get the help that I needed immediately. Um, and I went on and did my master's. And when I was finished, I started the foundation because I just feel that there's not enough people advocating for this population of people who often don't have a voice um, for themselves. So, uh, I, I love what I get to do uh, every single day now. 
So uh, thanks for the opportunity to share this with your listeners. Wow, that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, you know, you, so really it was your son. Um, did you feel that you were spiraling, Kevin, when your son was sent back to prison that time? Like, how, what did that feel like for you that sent you into that dark place? Wow. Um, so you win, Linda, because nobody has ever asked me that question. Uh, and <laughs> I stood, uh, yeah, that's a great question. And it's a hard question. And you know, um, because when we talk about the stuff that we've gone through in our life, we're not just having a conversation, we're actually picturing it as we speak, you know, so I remember standing in that driveway. So uh, as I said earlier, um, I moved out of my house with my wife and I moved into a, a smaller place, actually just on the street here on Cape Cod, um, that my grandfather had built when I was a kid. And um, part of Nick's reintegration was we're going to take all the, the clapboards and the cedar shake shingles and pull them off. Um, so every day he had a very regimented routine, which is what was super important yeah. uh, at the time. When he got rearrested, um, now I will tell you, that when I when we bought the home, when I put a mattress, a bed in there, and the carpet and the couches and everything, I literally um, laid on mattresses all over New England to make sure that he had the perfect mattress to come home to. Now we know there's probably only six kinds of mattresses, but mm. I went to every store I could find all over the place. I took my socks and shoes off and walked across carpet so that he would feel really great carpet under his toes when he was released. 103 days later, when I get the, a phone call that Nick has been arrested, um, and I knew that he, at that time, I knew he would never be back in that house again. So we're, we're talking the summer of 2012. We had just both, he got his license, had a job. Um, and I've been accepted with advanced standing to, to school. Nick had a 1340 on his SAT. Smart kid, smart guy, really smart yeah. guy. Um but I stood in that driveway the day after he was arrested and I looked at that, that house and I knew he would never walk through that door again. I knew he'd never walk through it. And I passed that, I passed that house 200 times a year. It's right down the street from me now. Wow. Um, and it was, it was a lot. It was a grief that I had never, never experienced. And I'm very fortunate in my world. I'm, I'm thrilled that I can say that I'm fortunate in my world. Um, I have a great daughter, a granddaughter. My wife is awesome. Um, but in that moment, standing in the driveway on that day, yeah. it was black. It was just dark. Um, and it was an overwhelming grief where had I not had that nanosecond of clarity where I had my phone in my hand and I, and I, and I called the suicide hotline at the VA, um, I don't know that I would be here. Wow. You know, I, I needed, it was just, it was, I just didn't want to hurt that bad. It, it was, it was a bad feeling. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's what happened. That's how it happened. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, so when you, and you went in and got help, yeah, it's hard to sort of process, but when I, when I'm trying to sort of put that into a context for our listeners, right. Um, I don't want to use the word, but this stuff is real, right? You know, this stuff oh, is yeah. real. And, and yeah, a split moment when your life turned upside down, right? Um, when you got that call, you said, um, and you knew that your son wasn't going to come back home to this home again. Um, that was dark. It was a dark place. 
And thank God that you had a rational mind for, you know, for you to be able to um, call that number, suicide yeah. number. Yeah. I you don't know? know where that came from. It then fortunate, fortunate. To you, yes. When yeah. you're right. Fortunately, I did have that, but um, it was tough. It was, it was a really, really tough time. I had two days earlier, maybe even 24 hours earlier. I was the dad whose son finally came home. And I, now I could, I could teach him how to golf. Now he's 26 years old. He didn't know how to turn on a laptop. I got to finally be a dad. I had spent eight years, um, every single holiday in prison at, at the prison with him talking to him. So every, every Christmas and new years and Thanksgiving and, and Easter Sunday, I was on the other side of the walls hanging out with Nick. So he wasn't alone. And when he was released, I said, thank God I never have to go back in there again. Yeah. Um, and it, it was, it was just a, it was exciting for me. I, I, I finally got to be a dad Yeah. and it was all taken away. Yeah. It was taken away, and uh, it was it was really really unfortunate. Yeah. Did so. you feel? Did you feel? I I want to start to get into that a little bit about you because I think it's important. Yeah. I know we're going to talk so much about you know all that you're doing, but I think it's important to start to elaborate on on this a little bit. Did you feel anger, sadness, um, or was there like so, like as if it was someone losing something or someone like uh, losing a son? Did you feel anger towards that, like or sadness? What 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 was that feeling like? Describe it. Well, yeah, it, it really. I, I think that it was incremental in this. So it was over a period of time. You go through those seven stages of grief and processing, mm. and mm. that's where I was on, on day one. Um, I couldn't see day two. I couldn't see 30 minutes from now. Had I had the means, I don't know what I would have done. I just know that I didn't want to exist anymore at that time. Uh, And just standing in that driveway, staring at that house, and I was going through all the things. I mean, I was that dad um, who would take the mental pictures. Oh, look what we're doing together. We're eating together. We're smiling together. We're laughing together. We're doing these things that I hadn't been able to do in a long time, like just a long time. So initially yeah. it was just grief. And when I was able to, to, to process that, um, fortune to be able to talk to a, a doc over at the VA, um, I was angry. I was pissed off. I mean, dear God, I, you literally have everything that you could possibly want. Best case scenario. There was yeah. probably no better case scenario other than Nick being able to speak with a culturally competent clinician. So it's not just somebody who's, who's degreed and, and they're fantastic at their work. But if you haven't worked with somebody with a significant mental health diagnosis, who's been in a men's max prison for the last eight years, and now to unknown to me has an addiction issue as well. And we don't know what happened on the inside. Yeah. Nick's a big dude. I mean, he, he's my, I'm, I'm six, four, two Nick was a, is a big dude. Um, he was an enforcer. You know, and the enforcer was if that guy's a problem, Nick would be the one who solved the problem, and then they he would put him in they would put him in the hole. Where somebody with the his illness, he liked that environment because it was control. But, yeah. Um, so I did. I was mad. He wrote me letter after letter. He called me from from you know down the street here. I wouldn't answer the phone. I couldn't answer the phone because I couldn't talk. So um, I had. I'm a typical guy in that I, um, I had the perfect plan A and I was just so cocksure of myself that I didn't have a plan B. What do I need a plan B for? My plan A is awesome. Yes. Um, it's all going to work out. Apart, 
Mm. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah. We're gonna go. We're gonna write a book about this. Then we're yeah. gonna teach people yeah. how to reintegrate it to society. Um, so I, I was mad. I was very mad after the fact. But um, super mad was my wife. She was really, really upset because she had to pick up the pieces, and mm. the the pieces sometimes was on the floor, blacked out for a day or two. Um, yeah. the, the pieces were very. You know, I was just very not just unhappy, um, but I would find issues with, I was looking for issues, yeah. you know, so that I could, I, I could vent a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with us because I, I feel it's very important to, you know, to share that with our listeners who, who can't see you. Right. And he, he has this very, very, um, um, friendly face open you feel you, you're, you're very open you have a very open face feature and I feel that from you through the camera um, and I just thought I wanted our, our listeners who don't see you be able to start to feel that from you too by you be, just being open and sharing your story your journey of how you got there and then you, you said you called the VA so you got help through the VA right I did. I got to talk to an army doc. Um, he was just absolutely fantastic. I'm actually going to be reconnecting with him shortly. Um, great guy. Just a, a really, really great guy. He helped me get it together because I really, uh, I wasn't asleep. I didn't sleep for days on end. Mm. Um, I was re, you know, you know what I did Linda is, um, and, and I know that Jerry's going to be studying this stuff, but I, I started on day one when he was released and I went through every single decision that I made all the way to the day that he got arrested. And I could do it because I was taking so many mental, mental pictures. Yes. So I knew what I did on, on April 25th. I knew what I did in, in May. Um, on what day we did everything because so I so, was okay, what did I do wrong? Clearly I did something wrong because he's back in prison. Mm. So I own that. No, because I was the guy, I'm the, the, the veteran, I'm the military guy. We make plans, we follow through, we execute and everything works out hopefully the way we want it to. Yeah. But, um, I just kept playing it over and over and I'd get to the end of that tape. Couldn't find anything wrong with what I did. And like, well, I must've missed something. And I'd go back and start again. And I would do it for days on end, um, until I finally would just pass out, uh, from exhaustion. And I wow. was fortunate to be able to, to reach out, um, and talk to uh, talk to this gentleman who was just a fantastic guy, really, really great guy who who definitely uh, um, helped save me mm. for sure. And that was yeah. the start of your healing journey for you. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That you know, also Linda, is that as I had said uh, earlier, is that we both applied to and got accepted to um, uh, to college. So Nick yeah. was going to do his undergrad, and I got accepted down at Penn State into the first cohort. Or uh, uh, mental health care, I'm sorry, uh, uh, healthcare professionals, uh, HPA program. So I was going to get my master's uh, health policy administration. So it being type A, um, I had to do everything as perfect as I possibly could. So I was absorbed with work. I was, oh, I always had something to be focusing on mm -hmm. from the minute I woke up to the minute I went to bed, my yeah. brain was taxed. Yeah. So I didn't have time to think about the stuff that was really upsetting. This was... I, but, but I will share that every single optional paper, when you like pick a topic, write about that in this context, I would always pick mental health. And so I was really trying to figure out what did I do wrong because I still didn't get that answer. Mm -hmm. So if I got to discuss, you know, healthcare in America or the uh, criminal justice system as it relates to mental health care and 
um, reentry or recidivism uh, issues, I always wrote about mental health and where was the tie. So it was me really can, using those two years to continue to pull on a thread to figure out what went wrong, what could I have done differently, what should I do differently, how do I help other people down the road. Yeah, I, I, I hear you saying, um, you know, when you were talking about, you know, going to that mental picture of, of, you know, you were making those mental pictures all the time. And when you were reviewing it um, and you got to the end of it, you didn't you couldn't see what you were doing wrong. And then you went back over it again. Right. Sounds to me a lot like trying to figure out if, a lot of guilt there. Right. A lot of guilt going on in your head. And then also somewhat being a fixer. Uh, if, I, if I can figure this out and find out what piece of the puzzle is missing there, I can fix this. And, um, and, I, can, and I can start to relate with, with you in that way. Um, when we lost Alex, um, that was something that I, I did personally myself, didn't push my own feelings aside. Was there anger allowed to surface a little bit? Was there sadness? Um, and those different things that I felt, yeah, but very, very small amount because I didn't want my family to see it. But I pushed myself into work. Um, I own a little cafe here in, in Weymouth and uh, I was work, 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 work and I'm out the door at 3.30 in the morning and sometimes I wasn't coming home till very late at night, maybe 8 o'clock at night and the same thing over and over again. So the reason why I did that and I've learned over, you know, through those five years that I did that so I didn't have to think about Right. I didn't have to let my emotions surface come to the surface because oh. then I would have to feel that and recognize that this was after happening. Um, and also I did it for my family because I was the fixer in my family and we've other kids, right? So I had to be the strong one for them. And then and how can I fix them? How can I get fix them through all of this, mm-hmm. make their life better through all of this so they're not in pain and suffering Um going through this how can I help them heal so I was always the one that was putting myself in there until I realized you know I need this I need to work on me too right um but that's sort of what I got from you there was like you know there was a lot of guilt there and then um you know you were you were trying to fix this issue and also you know when you were going to school as you said um and I know Jay can relate with this um because you said you like you were going to school and the, all the the topics that you were picking up or the papers that you were allowed to do. You were talking about mental health, and again, if I learn everything I can about this subject, about the brain, how it works, how it's wired, maybe I can fix myself, and maybe I can also fix my son, help my son, um, through this. Jay, do you want to chime in? Because I know you can relate with this. Uh, I sure can. I, I can relate to a lot of what's being said. Yeah, when I <clears> initially <throat> went back to school to get my undergrad, that was that was my plan. Uh, I went to get a degree in psychology. I was telling no one that I was having trouble. And my idea was, um, I without ever having to admit my own struggle to anyone, I'll go back to school, I'll learn a little about the human condition, solve my own problems, and then I'll help others. I mean, that's not how it went, right? But... But that was uh, my initial plan. And w- when I listened to you, well, first, I, I really appreciated hearing you talk about the importance of culturally competent clinicians. That's something that I, I think yeah. just uh, in terms of what the outcome of a therapeutic process is, it's, it's so important. Um, and, and then when you were talking about the reactions that, that you were having, um, 
if there's someone listening to this podcast right now, a first responder, a veteran, or really anyone, and they're going through that cycle, because I could relate to a lot of that too my with my own particulars, but I had a terrible uh, experience with sleep um, for, for, you know, a long period of time, and, and uh, I know what an impact that had on me. I can relate to uh, long periods of hypervigilance and racing thoughts and guilt and all this other stuff. And uh, I, I know that there's people that will listen to this podcast that are experiencing uh, their own reactions to their own incidents, their own traumas right now. What advice would you have for someone uh, that's, that's in that place in their life right now? You know, it, it's a it's a great question. It's a tough question because I, I think back to that time when I was in that spiral. Um, I didn't I didn't give a crap what anybody else said. I was going to figure this out. So it, it was tough. And I also I wouldn't allow myself to experience life to be happy. Um, so if I was going to give advice, um, especially this time of year, and for folks who have lost somebody, um, be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do because we specialize, especially you first responders. You give and give and give and give until there's like, like absolutely nothing to pour from the cup. And then you find you know, reserve and you give more. But you don't give to yourself. You know, veterans, you know, military, we don't give to ourselves. We take care. We're people pleasers. So, you know, how do we help others in their time of need? But um, I went for the longest time not allowing myself to be happy. Um, I, I would actually catch myself enjoying something and then stop because I was, if I was unsuccessful in helping Nick, then why should I, why, how do I deserve to be happy? Mm. And I could see that there's a correlation between that and first responders. If I wasn't able to save this person who overdosed, if I wasn't able to pull this person out of the fire before they passed away or the car accident, why should I be happy? Because they're gone. Mm. You know, and all of these life events that happened post incident, you, you almost put a governor on yourself. And I did that for, for a long, I did that for a couple of years. Um, and that was very difficult. I'm, I'm glad that I showed up. I was finally able to show up with the help, you know, my doc and, and having conversations with him. The guy was out of his friggin' mind. I mean, I loved him. He gave me some crazy advice. Like, wait, no wonder you're in the army. You, you, you're out of your mind. But he was, <laughs> yeah, I was Navy. I was Navy. Yeah, yeah. I was submarine force. So, and I'll tell you a story possibly if we have time, uh, some advice he gave me at one juncture. But when I, when, when I gave myself permission to be happy again, yeah. everybody around me was happy again. Yeah. Everybody was around me. Yeah. And that, that's a, that's a big thing. Wow. Um, we, we, we think that they don't notice, but they do. Oh, it, yes. it certainly bleeds over, right? It definitely bleeds over mm. uh, into, into the margins. They know. Um, yeah. In, in how we make ourselves happy. So uh, I think that's that's a one bit of advice I would give, Jay, is, you know, be kind to yourself. Mm. It's okay. Yeah. You know, it's okay. Yeah, give yourself some grace, right? Yes, yeah. of course. Yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. for sure. So, wow, <laughs> this is like great conversation here. I could talk about this all night long. <laughs> um, so the Quell Foundation, you went back to school, yeah. and I'm trying to I start did. to build a sort of story or a picture. Um, you went back to school, and that led you into, I believe, 
to starting the Qual Foundation because you were every subject you were you were talking about mental health and there was a need, right? More information. Take us on that journey of how that started. And I'm also very interested the name and where did the name come from? Oh, yeah. well, um, the name the name is is really cool. I'll definitely uh, tie it off with that at some you know at some point in this. So. When I finished school, my dream job had always been um, to be the chief operating officer of a hospital. I loved helping and taking care of people. I didn't want to be the CEO. I'm not good at some of the things the CEOs have to do. Um, I, I, I like to be the hands-on, walk into the patient's room, not have to focus on the on some of the the costs or, or the doctors or, or whatever. I, I'm being careful guarding. I want to get jumped here, but um, <laughs> I want to be chief operating officer of a hospital. When I uh, when I finished my degree down at Penn State, I was offered that big job. Um, I, I was offered the, my dream job, but I had learned so much about mental health in America and certainly in the criminal justice system that I, I talked to my wife, uh, Karen, and um, said, I want two years. Just give me two years to see if I can make an impact if i can have some type of footprint to help this population of people advocate for them how, do, how can i do this so um she knew it was a rhetorical question and she really didn't want to have to deal with me pouting for the next two years and i definitely would have made her life miserable <laughs> I definitely, i'm a freaking guy that's what i do i want to sulk for two freaking years so she's like just just do it okay do it um so i, I started the foundation i didn't know how i knew nothing about a not-for-profit i filed the paperwork they said you, you can't be the only officer so you need another officer i wrote down my buddy's name and then i called him and told him he's like you did what i'm like no yeah yeah it's not that big a deal he's like no it actually is but yeah, yeah. so we started i started the the foundation um i called it quell because 100% transparency, it was on the back of a bottle of wine. I was sitting on my front porch at this house, smoking a cigar, drinking a glass of wine, and on the back of it, it said Quell. I'm like, I like that name. I like the word. So I didn't want to name the foundation anything to do with mental health because um, when you do, half your audience will check out before you get a chance to tell them what you're doing. I go mental health uh, yeah, because there's such a stigma associated with yep. it. So how do I get them to ask me that question? And by the time I'm done talking to them, they've already related to, to at least something I've mm. said. Wow. Because everybody knows somebody. And the definition of quell is to bring order and balance to chaos. Yeah. And that's what I want to try and do. So I call the dude that owned the bottle of wine um, <laughs> or who was who marketing. I called him on California like, hey, listen – Here's what I'm going to do. Um, I want to know. Uh, I just, I just want to let you know. I'm going to be naming my foundation Quell. And he's like, buddy, go for it. I love it. He said, I was actually um, a graduate degree program, University of Texas. Um, I'm in the LGBTQ community. I have bipolar disorder. I got pulled out of school, and my dad gave me a bunch of grapes over there and said, go do whatever you want with those grapes. Oh my goodness! And he started making wine called quell and it is it is really fantastic and every year he sends me some and i give it to my donors some of my donors but that's where quell started wow. to bring balance in order to chaos and that's what we're trying to do yeah. wow yeah. isn't that crazy i mean crazy to think that i just <laughs> like that name but you didn't know where it where it came from or where the, yeah and then oh, it was meant to be 
For sure. Meant to be. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. It was yeah. meant to be. So share with yeah. us, like, the start up of the Quell Foundation. You, you got to two years. Your wife granted you two years. That's it. We're going to put a timestamp on it. And, um, yeah. and there was no pounding. And then you got to work. Share with us about this. So um, everybody thought I was out of my friggin' mind. And, you know, they probably weren't that far from the truth. But um, initially, because it was all around Nick, you know, as a parent, we do stuff. We react to what happened and yes. how we resolve that issue for everybody else down the road. Yeah. So my issue with Nick was how do we reduce recidivism rates? How do we how do we address reentry and reintegration protocols? Because if they were effective, he would not end up back in prison. You know, if we had enough people to to treat people with the mental health challenge, then I would not have had to say, Nick, you have to wait. Um, now I had an appointment with this with a psychiatrist the day after Nick was released. I mean, I was, I had this buttoned up. We got to the office. He said, listen, he's going to talk to my therapist for the next nine to 10 weeks. And then he'll come, you know, he'll come visit with me. Um, well, the therapist can't prescribe meds, can't assign a diagnosis. Um, and she was scared. Nick was saying things to her that was scaring her. And I can't imagine I can't imagine just say with Jamie, he could tell me all day long, all the work he's done, but I will never know what it smells like walking into a burning house. I'll never know. Uh, just like he'll never know what it smells like. I don't, I am assuming what it smells like to, to, to go down on board a submarine. And so what, what happened with the, with the foundation is I wanted to help incarcerated people reintegrate into society. So I started knocking on doors at, you know, at, in Massachusetts here, state house, um, and it was a non-starter. Everybody kept saying, that's a non-starter. Like, well, I have another 45 minutes, so we're going to have this conversation. Wow. And essentially what it was, was I can't tell my constituents that they, that they elected me to a public office and I'm going to spend my time trying to figure out how do we keep ex-cons from recidivating, going back into prison. They had a point. I mean, it's a fair point, um, but it didn't help my issue. So I wanted to figure out in a circuitous way, how do we resolve this issue? Now, when I walk, when I walked out of um, that gentleman's office, I said, "If you cut the budget for the mental health uh, mental health funding for next year, I promise you, I'll have a thousand people out in the public garden, you know, screaming about it." And he said, "I'll be standing beside you." But when I walked out, there was a Boston Globe reporter standing there, Jenna Russell, an absolute angel, and she said, "Do you have a minute?" Like, wow. Well, yes, I wow. And we started talking and we just started having a conversation. So what was that about? And we had a great exchange. I shared the story. She actually wrote an It took her a long, over a year to write this. And it was about mental health in the criminal justice, justice system. And it was under that spotlight team. Mm-hmm. You know, the spotlight. Yeah. Yeah. This woman was part of that team and she's just phenomenal. Uh, Jenna uh, and I and our families are dear friends now. It didn't. Um, so I figured out very quickly, we can't have a foundation that's centered around um, people that are coming out of the prison system. So how do we do it? Well, why don't we just stop them from getting into this to begin with? How do we prevent them? Stop pulling people out of the water go up the stream and figure out why they're jumping in. Yeah. That's what we're doing. So um, to reduce suicides, overdoses, and the, and the incarceration. So how do we do that? A lot of people don't reach out and ask for help, as you definitely know, I'm sure, with, yeah. with Alex and, and Jay knows as well. There's a cultural thing and there's mm-hmm. a stigma associated with it. So um, how do we normalize the conversation? 
because I sure as hell didn't ask to, to be suicidal. I mean, I don't want for anything. How did I end up calling a suicide hotline? Yeah. I'm sure Jay never walked into that profession saying, I hope someday I have PTSD. This is stuff that happens to you in spite of your efforts. So I want to normalize the conversation around mental health. I want God help you if you're sitting next to me on a train or a plane or in a bar. You're going to know everything I know. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you're going to be sobbing by the end of it, or you're going to be saying, my mother, my father, my brother, me. You know, we're going to have that conversation. Yes. And we say, who gives a shit? I mean, really, who gives a shit about this? This is this is okay. Um, and when we get to that juncture, we're going to start seeing suicide rates reduce. We're going to mm-hmm. – people self-medicate, as we said, in the absence of treatment. So – that's the, the drugs and alcohol and, you know, all the different vices that we have. Yes. If we can make it okay, if we can make it okay to just have a conversation, then that's going to change everything. It's going to yep. change absolutely everything. Um, so Qual Foundation, reduce suicides, overdoses, and the incarceration of people. How do we do it? Well, um, I give scholarships to students. I didn't know where to start. So let's give scholarships to students with a diagnosed mental health condition so that they they know they're valued in society. So oh, they also recognize that. that they're not alone mm-hmm. because so many people think, right? I mean, how many people think that they're alone in whatever challenge they're going through on that day? I'm the only person who's ever lost a son to prison, you know, who's ever wanted to to take my life. Absolutely not. There's freaking millions of us. So I give scholarships to students who have a mental health diagnosis. I give scholarships to students who lost a parent or sibling to suicide. And this year, our next scholarship cycle, I, I have a new one that's specific to the family members of first responders who have either died by suicide or died in the line of duty. And it is specifically for this population of, of young adults. Um, and then my third scholarship or, or fourth at this juncture is I call it my bridge the gap because when we're successful, when you and I and, and Jay and everybody who's in this space trying to make a difference when we're successful, if we don't have somewhere for them to turn to and pick up the phones, they need to come see you in less than nine weeks, then we're not actually successful. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I give scholarships to students studying to be the next generation of mental health care professionals. Mm. Um, in the last six years, I've given away over $3.2 million. Wow. Um, I have students in 480 universities across the country, every state in the country. This is donated money. And I think it's important for the listeners to recognize that this money is donated to me. It's yeah. not, I, I'm not pulling it. Well, we, we certainly contribute to it, but society, people want to do something. They yes. don't know what to do. Yes. So I don't, I don't work in the legislative reformation space at all. I, I was very fortunate to speak at the white house several years ago to kind of help launch the foundation. But I want people to recognize that um, the money that I'm giving away to students was donated to us yeah. because people care. They really do care. Yeah. yeah. So the scholarship program, I started reading. I'm the only one who reads the applications because they're heartbreaking. There's, there's, they're heartbreaking. Um, I, I would, I got 1400 applications several years ago and, um, you, you know, I mean, the young lady who gets pulled out of high school so she can say goodbye to her mother who was killed by her father. The grandmother's already died. Um, and he's, he's, you know, been taken down to the station. This girl's a junior in high school. How, how the hell is she supposed to process that kind of stuff? You, yeah. you don't. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I read so many of these essays where they're saying, um, and I don't talk to my friends about it because I don't want them to judge me. It broke my heart. I'm thinking, oh, shit, I'm, I'm at this juncture. I'm somewhere in my mid fifties. Um, I'm, I get it. I get that level of grief. So I, I created a documentary called portraits of life with mental illness. And it's us. It's people like us. It's not the incarcerated or homeless or hospitalized. It's your professor. You know, it's, it's the woman who owns a diner, who's helping every, who gives coffee to everybody, all your first responders. Yeah. I get it, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to put a face to it that was incongruent with what society thought it looked like. It's not that, but just it's everybody around you. Yeah. Um, so we did the film, but, and I have no right making documentary Jamoke. I mean, I'm a freaking Jamoke from Massachusetts. Why am I making documentaries? <laughs> I mean, really? But yeah. I was very, very fortunate. And, but being the, I'm a research person. I like to understand the efficacy of it. So I, I did it. I feel really good about it, but didn't do anything. So I work with two epidemiologists, um, one from Penn State and one from here in Massachusetts. Um, and we did de-identified surveys. So before you watch this film, Portraits, um, we're going to give you a de-identified survey. Just answer the questions. I don't care who you are. I just want to know what you think about mental health. I want to get a baseline, mm -hmm. um, what you think about it. And I'm doing it for first responders too, Jay. And it's really surprising. Um, so we collected data. After they watch the film, sometime over the next two or three days, we kick them over a survey, same exact one, with, and we ask them the same questions again, and then we measure their response. Did we change the way you think about it? Are you now more or less likely to reach out and ask for help? Do you have the tools you think you might need to intervene if it's possible? So the results were so statistically significant. It took us about six months to decide what to write on. So we actually wrote, and I have no right doing research papers either, but we wrote a research paper wow. um, on the results of film's ability to positively influence the viewer. We know that film, TV, everything decides what we drink and what we eat, where we go yeah, and all that. Yes. But can we get it, can we use it to encourage you to reach out and ask for help with the mental health challenge with any kind of struggle at all. Will that work? And the answer was yes, definitively. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, we sent it off to people that are super smart and, uh, they did a peer review of it and they gave it our blessing or their blessing. And it got published in an international journal, um, last June as, um, as paper that is actually shows the efficacy of film's ability to positive influence. Wow. That's when I turned the lens to the first responders because you're you're a tough nut to crack, you know, the first responder <laughs> population. Yes, they are, right? for sure. Yeah. Yes, yeah. they are. So that was um you know, you did you did a a, a, a film or a, a documentary lifting the mask, right? For for mental health and then there was the the other one what was the one for first responders? Uh, sounding the alarm. Sounding the alarm, right? Yeah. So yeah. share with us about, did that one first documentary or film then lead, you're leading into the other one? You did sound the alarm last year, right? Or this year, earlier this year? I, I rolled it out last year. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very controlled because of the information. I mean, you don't want to dump something like this in, in somebody's lap and leave them alone. Um, mm. It did. It it gave me, because back to the first responder community, if you're not one of them, you're not one of them. And it's very hard to breach that wall. I, I'm, 
forgive me, but I'm, I'm going to say it, Linda. I, I can have these conversations with first responders because a lot of times you just need to talk a lot of shit about their mother and you're one of the guys. You know, that's what we do. It's a military thing too, right? Just talk some trash about mom and, and you're good to go. But, um, but you have to have it. You have to be invited to sit at that table. You yeah. have to be invited to come into the station. House. Yep. You have to be invited into that world. And the hundreds of hours I've spent in the presence of first responders, I'm not one of them, but I did do the documentary because I can now say, hey, listen, I did another one over here. I proved that this can help you. And now this one, the new one, is only first responders. Now, I didn't have consultants on it. It was me and a bunch of other jamokes who filmed some people who were very kind and saying, yeah, we'll definitely talk to you about some of the challenges that we've had. And I was, I was fortunate the way it got kicked off was um, – our big fundraiser every year is a masquerade ball. Yeah. And I it's mandatory masks because everybody hides behind the mask. Yeah. You only know what I want you to know about me. That's the mask, right? So um sitting at my mm. table several years ago was this guy, Chris Van Ness, beast of a guy. Um, Chris sat next to me. I didn't know who he was, uh, but um, at the end of the evening, he gave me his card and said, hey, give me a call sometime. And I stuffed it in my my tux jacket. And I think probably two or three months later, I picked it up at the dry cleaner. I'm like, oh, wow, who's this guy? So I called him. Well, Chris Van Ness um, was Yarmouth Police Department. He was a de- detective. Um, he's the guy who was in the attic with was Sean Gannon when Sean Gannon was shot in the head. Yeah. Um, and, and when he was murdered up there. That's Chris Van Ness. Um, and we were having a great conversation. And I said, I asked him, would you ever consider sharing this story? Because he he went through everything you go through, certainly with the PTSD and some of the challenges that you have. First guy in Massachusetts to be medically retired. Um, and because I had him, we talked to his chief, Frank Fredrickson. And Frank said, yeah, come over to the office. Come talk to us. So we went and unannounced and you know chief Fredrickson uh, invited us in and I knew some other people from the military uh, days uh, started talking to them Chris Fields from the Oklahoma City yes we just yeah we just interviewed Chris Chris is a he's a freaking rock star. Yeah, I know I know you you did a, an episode with Raul too yeah um, oh, Raul's yeah. a dear friend as well yes. yeah um, Doug Mond is somebody, Doug's yeah. another great freaking guy. Yeah. So the people that are in the documentary, they, they were very transparent, you know, about it. they're super transparent about it. And I made this film not to help society in general, the general pop understand the life of a first responder. I did it so that when they sit in that room, everybody's nodding their head saying, yeah, I get it. I remember doing that exact same thing. I remember feeling that way. Yes. Um, and I want them to recognize they're not alone. Yes. When, um, we've had so many uh, suicides this year. It's just, uh, you know, astronomical um, how many first responders that we've lost. But mm-hmm. the documentary, we showed it in Chicago first. Um, and Chicago lost several firefighters jumping off a roof of a building. Yeah. Um, one of the paramedics uh, that responded to that is in the documentary. I was one of her dear friends who who lost his life. Um, Mm. The goal of that film, first responders sound the alarm, 
um, is to help first responders recognize you're not alone. Now, these jamokes, and you're all a bunch of freaking jamokes, Jane. You know you are, because the firefighters are like, oh, those are cops. The freaking cops want a life-saving badge every time they, uh, life-saving ribbon every time they narcane somebody. And, you know, the fire, you know, the cops like, yeah, firefighters want, you know, they're going to set up a command post every time they get a cat out of the tree. And it's hysterical to listen to it. But you're thick as thieves. You know, if you're not one of you. Yep. You don't get an opinion about you, but if you are one, you, it's sort of, you know, Air Force, Army, Navy, you talk trash about each other. But yep. when push comes to shove, That's if right. you're not one of us, keep your mouth closed, yes. right? Yeah. So um, that's, we have a really good diversified population of people in the film. Um, we also have dispatch. You know, dispatch is a population of first responders who isn't recognized as first responders, yeah. but they are the very first, you know, and they yes. seldom get the closure. Right. And then, of course, you know, our EMTs and our corrections officers as well. So um, with this film, I also wanted to do some research and I'm not going to get you folks to do a pre anything. I mean, you, you don't plan anything. You're good at grabbing your shit and going out the door now. Wow. Um, like, but that's just how it is. Right. Yeah. So what we did is post screening. Um, we always have a panel discussion and the panel is always first responders. I'm, I might, I'll moderate it um, or I'll have somebody else moderate it. That's from your community. Um, but the panelists are always all first responders. And then one clinician who's spent at least eight years working with you. So they get it, yeah. you know, they, they kind of get it. Yeah. Um, yeah. The results, the, the results are far better than I could have ever ever hoped for and they only gave 10 questions uh it's it's a here's the 10 most important questions to me in the order that i want the answers to them um and one of the questions was would you willingly work with somebody with a mental health diagnosis and of course again it's i don't care what your name is i don't i don't care where you work i want to know how long you've been on the job you know what you do are you firefighter emt law enforcement um I want to know that so we can, you know, do uh, break it out in that way, segmented, um, stratify the results in that in that way. But would you willingly work with somebody with a mental health diagnosis? So so far we have almost 400 first responders who have answered everything that we can use in this study. Of those 400, 92.6% said yes, I would work yeah. with somebody with a mental health diagnosis. That is that is unheard of results. Nine out of 10 people said yes. Now, are they answering for themselves? Can everybody trust sure. you, Jay? I mean, you've been diagnosed with PTSD. Can they trust you to, to have their back? Freaking million percent they can, mm -hmm. right? That's the point. We're trying to help people understand, and, and I can only do it with your responses. I can't come up with this stuff myself. Yeah. I want to be able to say, well, well, this is what they told me in Chicago, in Philadelphia, down in South Florida, in Charleston. Um, these are the results from the surveys that we took of you folks, men and women, all different, all the different agencies. Um, Ninety-two percent said yes, I would work with. So there's your stigma, right? The stigma it, it's it doesn't exist in reality, you know. And, and so maybe you're projecting whatever the case might be, but. The first three questions, after having watched the film and had the panel discussion, because you have to have the panel discussion, you have to have the interaction, because you guys need to vet the people that are sitting up on that stage. Who is this guy and why should they give a shit what he has to say? 
so we we put them in front of you and let you go go after them. Um, and it's Chris Fields and Doug Monda and Raul and, and Chris Scowlin. Yeah. Um, it's all the folks in the actually all of the folks that are also in the film. They sit there and answer your questions. Yeah. Because um, they know what the world looks like through your eyes. Yes. You know, they know. Um, are you more likely? Are you more likely as a result of having watched the film and had the panel discussion to reach out and ask for help? to share your challenges with your brothers and sisters in the department, to share, um, to share your experiences with your family. Now share your fair uh, experiences with your family was in the low, it was, it was a mid 70th percentile, mm. still good stuff. But of course you don't want to go retry. You don't want to traumatize vicarious trauma, right? But as far as sharing it with their partners, 80th percentile willingness to reach out and ask for help, 80th percentile. Wow. It was a big, big numbers. Wow. Yeah. But it's because folks like Jay are making it okay for them to ask for help. And all the folks that are out there, all the first responders that are in this space saying it's okay to go ask for help. There's no re what trained you in all of your years of training to pick up a person with no legs, <laughs> nothing. I mean, mm. to pull a, to pull a baby out of a car, nothing trained you to be prepared for that mentally. Right. So you're supposed to be experiencing all this stuff and only other first responders can validate that. Yeah. And all I'm trying to do is say, Hey, here's, here's something that you might want to see and listen to these other folks over here to validate the way you're feeling right now. Now, you know, is, is EMDR going to work for everybody? No. You know, do you have to take medication for it? No, absolutely not. I mean, uh, Chris Van Ness talks about doing EMDR, this hocus pocus bullshit, sitting in a tent with two balls in his hand. And it's hysterical to listen to him tell the story. Yeah. But he said, it saved my life. It say, I thought it was a bunch of stupid nonsense, but it saved my life. Yeah. So I liked it. So the film is working. Wow. So. I, I, it's very interesting to hear that, yeah. that percentage, right, of, you know, from the survey, from watching that movie. Yeah. Um, very, very interesting to to hear. Would you work with someone with you know a mental health diagnosis? Um, you know, would you would you share that with your family or your spouse at home? You know what you're going through. I mean, that blows me away because there still is right. There still is a huge issue based on the numbers right of reported suicides and the, and the reported numbers. I I just reported right brought in from first help and and they track that information, but there's, there's still unreported numbers right and there's so many more probably even double that amount or more of suicides in first response. So there yeah. there is yes there is a movement in it and there is, it is getting better, but I still think there's a long way right and what what you're doing is bringing light to that and making it easier for first responders to. You know, I, I remember when we interviewed Raul, Raul, he said, I ended up starting to get help when I when I stopped giving an F. I'm not going to say what he said. He said, you know, yeah, I yeah. stopped giving an F of what people thought. I needed it. Yeah. I needed it. I needed help. And I needed to stop giving an F what people thought about me because we didn't yeah. share all that stuff. We did not share that I needed a minute to get over that last call before I go on the next one. Yeah. Know, I, we didn't talk. And I was like, what do you mean you didn't? Uh, we, Linda, we didn't talk about it. 
That's exactly how yeah. he presented it to me. We did not talk about it. And um, yeah. and I still feel, and, and Chris shared it too. Um, Chris Field shared it. You know, we just didn't, we needed to be, I didn't want to be worrying about so-and-so, so-and-so, thinking about what he experienced in that last call. He needed to be ready for the next one. And yeah. and that's the way they were brought up in in the culture in their in their environment that they worked in every day. I need you to be sound for that next call, and 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 they were trained basically trained or groomed, if I can use that word to make it easier for our our listeners to stuff that down mm-hmm. in the backpack, stuff that stuff mm-hmm. down, and don't think about it. Move on. This is this is what you this is what your job is, right? And then, yeah, and, yeah. and then you start to become desensitized. So there still is a huge issue as far as that. But again, the likes of yourself and so many different organizations and great guys like Raul and Rug, you know, Chris and, and the other Chris and Doug, just it takes a village, right? It takes a, a, a city. And, you know, if it starts off with a couple of few people, but then it takes a city to just, wow, this is normal. You know, this is yeah, normal yeah. to be talking about this stuff, not departments bringing in a program, but making it a, a normal, not a program that we're introducing to, but just making it a normal to be talking about this stuff. That's what yeah. needs to happen, you know. So, um, wow, I, I think that, you know, when you think about where you went, started off from the beginning mm. of where yeah. you, you started off, and then introducing the the Quell Foundation, and I don't know if if you had a plan to see where that w- was going to come. Like, share with us: is this yeah. beyond your wildest dreams of of where this has come? Like in the seven years, and then you know you can share a little bit about that. But where where do you see it going mm, yeah, um, in the next seven years or the next five years? Share with us about that. You know, um, I, I don't think I've ever done anything in moderation. So this doesn't <laughs> surprise me that we're doing good. I don't think we're doing good enough. I don't think we're doing enough because, because as you said, the numbers are still going going yeah. up. Um, and so I, I, in some ways, I own that. How do we get this out more? How do we share? You know, I'm not in competition with the other not-for-profits that yeah. are in this space. Yeah. We're all doing this for a very, very specific reason. Yes. Mm-hmm. So lock arms when we need to lock arms, yeah. and we'll figure this out because, you know, um, it's, it's just really, really important. You know, I, I want to say one of the things that I've learned from so many conversations um, was – the reason, one of the reasons first responders, uh, these folks don't share or talk to each other, one of them, is they don't want to add baggage. It's still that protective thing. Yeah. So when we were in Chicago, um, it, was, it was really a, a really great moment for me. We had a, a significant crowd in the room, and the question was asked, how many of you, by a show of hands, if your brothers and sisters in the department needed you to stay back to talk to them because they were having a tough time with something that they had witnessed. How many of you would stay back? Every hand in the room went up in the air, like in Mm. nanoseconds. Mm. And then the follow-up question was, how many of you, if you were having a difficult time processing something you just experienced, how many of you would ask for help? And in three days, we did actually four days, three times a day, 12 screenings, not a single person raised their hand. Yep. That's our problem. Everybody's willing to listen. 
nobody's willing to talk. Mm -hmm. So what I heard was a great way to get through that, you know, um, is how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. No, really. How you doing? No, really. I'm doing good. Okay. Tell me three good things that you're experiencing right now. And they can't, you can't when you're, I know I sure as hell couldn't find a single good thing to think about when I was in the depths. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. challenging. So that's a really good way to do it. Um, no, I, I think that the foundation, I'm really happy with where we are and what we're doing. I wish we could be doing more. Um, I, our sponsors are expanding. We are nationally recognized now. People are coming to us, reaching out to us. And so like, I worked for years in a hospital and I wore a suit. It doesn't make me a doctor, but I can't tell you how many times somebody said, hey, can you look at this? Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'll take a look at yeah. it, but you know, you want to get a second opinion, I <laughs> promise you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, being in this space, I get phone calls, people who are actively suicidal. I get a lot of, uh, a lot of those calls. So you know, you, you got to keep up with your training. Um, you have to be able to have the resources available and that's where we want to go. How do we develop a bench of people? I, I really, I, I see a paradigm shift, and I'd be interesting to, to know what Jay thinks here as well. I think there's a changing of the guard. You know, when I was in the military, and they, we, we hazed the ever-living daylights out of each other. You know, that was just part of the culture, but that culture shifted. So there's still a generation of leaders who grew up with the rub some dirt on it, walk it off, you're going to be fine. And I think we're in a transitional phase where there's the next generation of leaders are saying, yeah, you can rub some dirt on some of that stuff, but you need to go talk to somebody about the other stuff. And yeah. I like that. I think we're changing this and we have a whole generation, the next generation of leaders coming in uh, up and through the academies. But like, yeah, cool. I like the benefits. What do you have for my mental health? What are you going to help me with when this happens? And they're asking the questions because this, this younger generation is very socially conscious. Mm. Um, they, they want to help people, but they want to make sure that their head is on straight too. And that's at least, that's what I'm seeing in the college system and, and some of the academies that, you know, we, we've talked with. So I'm, I'd be interested to know what, what Jay thinks about that. Um, do you, do you see a change? Like when you, when you stepped in, when you retired, how was that? Yes, I, I absolutely see a change, a paradigm shift, and um, this part of the conversation and, and a lot of, of what you're saying and the work that you're doing is absolutely inspirational to me. That's how I'm feeling listening to you because I think it's so important and it's right at the core of what will create monumental change. Um, uh, only 20 years ago, right, like in, in, the, in the relatively recent past, the, the culture was programming itself because we didn't know any better. And the answer was like, well, this is what the job is. So, so what do you, if you can't handle it, that's okay, but you'll need to find something else to do because this is what the job is. And that was the limit of the understanding um, that we had and hearing that you're asking these questions and that you're collecting this data is, um, like, I'm, I'm not surprised by the answers, but it's just so good to hear them. Like, the first responders, they all want to be the one to stay back, right? You talked a little bit about the veteran, the military, the first responder personality, and um, it's these are personalities, these are cultures that I admire, and at the same time and for the same reasons that, that you know, uh, caused me to admire these cultures, it's those same character attributes that often can be 
our downfall because we want to be there for the next person. We want to lift up. We're helpers. We're rescuers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we neglect ourselves because that's where we place all of our focus. Um, and, um, you know, I was happy to hear that, that it sounded like you got honest feedback about, like, how many people are going to be the one to ask for help. And I think that's, like, where the next part of this conversation lies is um, the next change is getting from the incident to uh, being able to speak up for ourselves because we all say, yeah, I'll work with somebody that, that has a mental health diagnosis. But what about, like, once someone accepts it, like Linda was talking about Raul saying, you know, I stopped giving an F what people thought about me or, or what they said, and that's when, you know, he started to get well from there. And I think anybody that has had to address their own mental or emotional needs has had a similar experience. Mm. Um, so it's recognizing, especially in the first response in veteran communities, the cumulative trauma. Oftentimes we don't know that we're not well. We've become very slowly miserable and cynical, and it's just like, man, what happened to joy? What is that? I don't, I don't know anymore, right? Yeah. So getting the awareness out there so that, so that we can recognize that we've had a change like we would with our physical health because it's simply yeah. understood. Um, and once we get, man, once we get to that point where first responders are comfortable speaking up, uh, following an incident or in the moment that they're able to recognize mm. their own declining mental health and reach out for help the way that they would for a physical injury without stigma, yeah. which kind of leads me uh, to a question. I guess we talk a lot about stigma on this program. And I'm wondering if, what, what does that mean to you? What does stigma mean? You know, I, um, I have a, I have a logo. I don't even know if, uh, if I have anything um, with me. I have pins that say stigma with the red line through it. Now, of course, you can't put that on the freaking lapel of a cop because they want a blue line through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had to trademark. I'm telling you, Raul, it's like, I'll wear the shirt to this segment. But after that, I'm taking the shirt off. So, uh, you, yeah, I'm like, okay, I got you, brother. So I actually, I did another one stigma with the, with the blue line through it. It's, you know, it's the, to me, the stigma that's associated with mental health is just, it's, it's, an, it's all around ignorance and not in a negative connotation. It's just that we don't understand what yeah. it is and we're afraid of it, but more and more people actually have these challenges. So there's really nothing to be afraid of. I mean, you're diagnosed with PTSD. There's, I was diagnosed with clinical depression. Um, I had to take medication to go to sleep. You know, that's not who I was. That's not what my world was. I mean, um, but that's who I became because of something that that impacted me. I think that we owe it to each other to have these conversations to with with each other. Not saying that I mean I someday I'll be able to come to you and you'll be able to examine my friggin' head. But we have <laughs> to have people that are out there that are you confident because right when you when you went to start talking when I went to talk to, to start talking to somebody. If they're not, if they're not on board with it, they don't understand. Okay, here's why I'm going through this right now. If they're like, they don't have the experience working with the population, you're a very specific population. Then you go into your protective mode right away. You look up. You're, t- you don't want a clinician that's more traumatized by your trauma than yes, you. Yes, right. right. Yeah. yeah. 
Right. So how do we address that? I mean, so how do we address that? You know, because we don't, we're, we're trying to fill, bring more people into the space. We have an aging population of clinicians. A lot of them like can just like rubber stamp. Okay. This is what your diagnosis is right out of the gate. This is what you need you and the other million people, but that's not the case for all individuals. Yeah. So what my wife and I personally have done, there's a great program down in South Florida, a behavioral health degree program, integrated behavioral health degree program. And um, we challenged them. We gave them um, a chunk of money and said, we want you to develop a curriculum, a specialized curriculum, elective, only for clinicians to work with first responders. Mm. So if it's six, if it's six courses or if it's eight, whatever it is, when they graduate, they're competent to work with first responders. So if that means they have to do 40 hours or 120 hours of ride-alongs, if they have to like, you're going to talk about dismemberment or, or drown. Yeah. Yeah. I was there. I was there when, so we want them to be able to know what the world looks like through your eyes, but also have the training, like you're going to have Jay to have the training to be able to address those issues. Mm. So Karen and I funded a program down there to address this. We co-own the intellectual property. So once the program is done and it's we're standing it up, then we can share it with other organizations, other colleges across the country. Awesome. But it wasn't enough for them to say, here's what we think they need. You guys are going to rip the ever-living crap out of everything. So we have a council of only first responders who are going to sit down and say, yeah, that's not going to fly with us. So, and I got Chicago PD that came in. I got, you know, Cocoa Beach. We have some folks from um, LA. We have a bunch of people that are going to sit down and tell these academic academians, like, no, that's, that's crap. Yeah. That's not going to work with us. Yeah. We'll eat you alive. Yeah. So we're doing that right. That's what we're doing to get culturally. Wow. So when you do say, I need to go talk to somebody, you have somebody that's available. I, I think um, Chris Scallon, he has a great analogy. He used it the other day when we spoke in New York about a plumber. If you had a, have you had, have you had Chris Scallon on the program? Yet? I haven't yet. No. We will though. <laughs> so I will, uh, I'll give Chris all the credit because everybody loves this one. If, um, if you get a leaky pump pl- uh, pipe and you get a plumber that comes in and he fixes it, he says he fixes it, but it's still leaking. Do you just like not call another plumber? You like say okay, well, I guess it's just I'm not gonna I'm gonna let leave. Yeah. Or do you find somebody who can get the job done? Right. Yeah. So that's the same thing with clinicians. Yeah. I was fortunate that I I met this uh, this gentleman, Dr. Dingman. I think the world of him, um, and I was able to connect with him right out of the gate because he was just he just talked at my level. You know, um, I one of the things that I'll never forget about about him is uh, I I loved him. He said um, I was. I was going for an interview for that big job. And uh, I said, so and I'm really struggling because I have all this stuff going on in my head. He said, listen, just freaking go in there, pull your pants down, be yourself. You'll be fine. Like, okay, thanks doc. Um, I came back yeah. a month later and I said, Hey, I did exactly what you told me to do and everything worked out really well. So what, what did I tell you to do? So you told me to go in there and pull my pants down and be myself. I said, I said that. <laughs> and I died laughing. So it's kind of cool that it's able to able to do that. But I think it's important that we have, um, back to your, your question about stigma, that we were able to address it um, and recognize that we've created the stigma. Yeah. And it's unjustified yeah. at this point. Right. So when I talk to college students and, and they say, well, society thinks this, I'm like, let's hold on. You are society. Yeah. You get to decide whether or not 
this is something that you're going to alienate somebody over it, it, whether or not um, you're going to normalize the conversation around this because when you get past it there's some great conversations to be had yeah. you yes. get to talk, and you folks have I, i've listened to a lot of your podcast it's freaking odd you get to talk to people that are amazing yeah. and with the work that you're doing and i say it to my team we are changing the lives of people we'll never meet yeah we'll never meet them yeah it's generational yeah you know through our own traumas yes we're going to be able to help somebody else and yeah. i think that's the most altruistic thing that we can do yeah you know help somebody else out of our own pain so. yes Absolutely. Yeah, I can do this all day. Sorry. I love, I absolutely love, <laughs> love this conversation and how it's sort of just, you know, someone listening. I'm, I'm putting myself and someone listening on, on the, on the, on the podcast when it's released and saying, wow, it's just got so inspiring to say, wow, yes. empowering someone to say, you know what? I'm going to stop giving an F about what people think of me. I'm going to ask for help. And, you know, I'm going to start looking after myself. It, do, it doesn't, it, you know, it just takes that one l- little shift in mindset of the yeah. way of the, just that, it could just take that one little shift mm. in mindset of a glimmer, like a little door opening, yeah. a crack even, right? And then, yeah. and then all of a sudden the crack gets wider and wider and it's opening up their heart. It's opened up everything yeah. for them to start looking after themselves. But having said that, I mean, my my interpretation of stigma. I mean, I'm going to say it again, Jay. I mean, please, please do. I mean, there's just so much, right? There's the self-imposed stigma, um, from one that says I'm going to fix this myself, and yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to tell anybody about what's going on with me, and um, I'm not going to tell anybody what's going on. I'm going to fix it myself until they realize that they can't. And um, that they need to be able to, you know, have some, I mean, that's sort of an irrational way of thinking, right? I'm going to fix this myself. And then, you know, have someone be able to sort of walk them through little guidelines and say, oh, okay, I'm opening that little crack to receive some more new information. And and then there's sort of like what, what Chris was talking about in his interview, you know, shove it down shove it down so it's now what what the culture in that department is what I'm learning from the department that I'm being brought into and I have to go along with this because I'm not going to tell the senior guy hey I'm struggling after that last call so I'm going to shove that down and then it's also the administration um you know the administration ever there's some great departments you know that are really really yeah. open to supporting the first responders, really getting it that, or not forgetting, maybe that administration, that chief was, you know, was that young guy right a long time ago, right? He yeah. was that guy yeah. um, that was, you know, in there five years and has after seeing a lot of stuff going on. But then there's other administration that is like, just don't get it. And yeah. just start to yeah. close the door where... There's that guy is not comfortable knocking on the door and saying, I need help. And I th- believe really, really, truly it's because it's de- like, you know, first responders, you talk about that. You, you, you called it a name. I forget what the name was, but they all hear in departments about each other's business. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. in the fire department, in the police department, they all start to know. So they're going to keep it down to themselves. 
um, for a bit, but they also watch. And if they see a first responder who was probably, you know, isolating themselves a little bit from the the lunch table or the or the or the the kitchen table as they call it in the fire department, yeah. right? Isolating themselves and they once were, you know, very active and very, you know, cracking jokes and all that type of stuff and all of a sudden they're, you know, over time they've isolated themselves. But a first responder watching someone knock on the door of of the administration and say uh, and see that person either getting help, right? And then once again that person has turned themselves around and they seem like themselves again. Talk happens, right? Mm. In departments. Yeah. It happens. They share. Yeah. Wow, I I got help and I was supported. Well guess what? That first responder watching on is gonna say or believe if I need help, I know I'm gonna receive the same. Because I've seen it happen. But on the flip side of that, Kevin, is the first responder going and getting help. Especially maybe in police, right? Or or whatever, it doesn't matter. Corrections, wherever Mm -hmm. it might be. Um, If that first responder is going and getting help, and the first responder looking on sees that first responder being penalised, ridiculed, um, maybe losing their job, um, because they went and saw help. Um, well, guess what? That first responder looking on is not going to go knocking on that door because he's going right. to say, I'm not going to talk about this because I need to support my family and I need a paycheck, right? Or, and yeah. I'm not going to talk about this. So there's that type of stigma too, right? Mm. It yes. all depends yes. on you know, the department that they're working in and, and where it comes from. And that's that's where I come from is is making it easier for first responder to to say, no, I don't give an F what people think about me. I'm going to get help. And, yeah. and we're trying to make it easier when people come in and interview with us and they share their story, not only of struggle, but of recovery and what helped them, yeah. right? right? It just might empower another one to be able to do the same thing. And and hopefully maybe inspire departments to say, hmm, you know, maybe there is something wrong with my department that's no one knocking on my door, but we have a lot of guys struggling, mm, you know? Right. And um, yeah. yeah, so I'd love I, to I, hear your take I, on that. Yeah, I, um, I'm going to put it on Jay for a second before I respond to that because <laughs> I'd love to know. I know what happened with me, but I'd like to know what happened with Jay. when. So you got your diagnosis. When you shared that with your brothers and sisters in the department, if you shared that, I mean, mm-hmm. you're on the program, so clearly you do. Yep. Um, what was the reaction that you got? Overwhelmingly positive. It was an overwhelmingly positive uh, conversation and the most rewarding, some of the most rewarding moments um of my life have, have been when others that I either didn't know were struggling or may have suspected were struggling, but it's not to me to crowbar help on them. It doesn't work that way anyway. Right. But through sharing some of my own experiences with suffering and with, with, um, you know, with recovering, finding a new degree of wellness in my life to, you know, when the phone rings and, and I pick up and all of a sudden I realize, Oh boy, you know, this is a friend of mine who's been, holding on to, to some secrets and, and they're having some trouble. 
you know, that's incredible. And it, and it wouldn't have happened without sharing those experiences. I think what Linda was just talking about, you know, in terms of the experiences of first responders, um, you know, going through this process of traumatic reactions and finding a way to recover, that is what determines the next direction in this conversation and whether it leads to, you know, uh, yeah. more positive, progressive results or, or otherwise. And if yeah. I can step back to your earlier question to me, Kevin, about, um, you know, whether I've seen a, a transformation in the conversation, you know, the, the short answer is absolutely. And we've gotten from a point of it's not okay to have mental health problems in, as a first responder and be able to continue doing this job. We've moved from there to a point where we say it is okay to have mental health problems here. And what comes next, what we hope to see, is, is where we can say it's okay for me to have mental health problems and be a first yeah, responder. Yeah. And we're not, we're not there yet. But it is, it, it, I mean, it is coming, and it's coming by way of people sharing their experience, their strength, and their hope. Um, with others and being honest and and authentic um, about those, those experiences. And then the resources, the structure, the the department, everything coming together to say, and they're going to recognize anyway, I, you know, I I don't have the the data to back this statement up, but, but I'm sure if there was a study, it would be true uh, that it's, it's a financial savings. And that's not, I don't think recognized by administrators and everything yet. Like if, when you have first responders who are already having traumatic reactions, they're not talking about however they're coping, whether it's through alcohol, anxiety, tension, whatever it is, whatever their coping mechanisms are. But if they are comfortable reaching out for help, they receive treatment when they reach out and they get well. When you have first responders at their mental and emotional best, that's to the betterment of the individual, their families, the community, the department, everyone they serve. Yeah. 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 You, you nail, you are so absolutely correct. Um, you know, I, I love the fact that we can we can say with 100% certainty that um, five years ago, we wouldn't have been having this conversation yeah. you know, when we lost Alex. We wouldn't have had this conversation five years ago. No. We weren't doing podcasts about mental health in the first responder community. We we're burying it. And now here we are. What do you want to know? You know, that that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. You opened the door. When you talk with you know your your, your colleagues, um, the folks at the buyers, when you shared that, you allowed them to share it. You and that's when I started the foundation. I was going to help everybody over there. You know, I wasn't talking about me. Yeah. You know, look, yeah. There's nothing to see over here, people. Yeah. Um, so you start the foundation, and I really had to say to, to Karen, um, and I wrote it all down. I need to share this story. I need to tell people why I'm doing this. But I was yes. terrified because I come from a military community and they're going to jump me and they're going to just give me so much crap. But I had to do it because I wanted to be sincere and transparent about it. So I, I, I posted everything up. I, I wrote it all up. I gave it to Karen to read. She's like, oh, dear God, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, it is what it is, right? This is what it is. I put it on all my social media and I waited to get jumped and the absolute opposite happened. Yeah. Just like you said, yes. I had people coming from years and years and years ago. I have, I live with, I attempted, I lost. Everybody mm-hmm. wanted to talk about it. When you give people an opportunity, you open that door yes. and give people an opportunity. You yes. make it safe to have the conversation. And it may just be, 
um, a very quick conversation, but like ours, I mean, did you think it was going to come all the way to this place? Yeah. You, you, we, we created a space where we felt okay talking to each other about this. Yes. And I think there, there's, there's just so much. And I think it's also important, and I want to throw it out there for your listeners. You've probably heard it a bazillion times. Don't compare trauma. No, don't compare trauma. No. You know, my, my depression is not your depression. You know, how I looked at the world through my those eyes at that specific period in time is nothing like somebody else's. It's very, very individual, mm. but we can in communicating with each other. And and that's part of what happens in the in the first responder community as well. Well, I didn't lose somebody. Frank Fredrickson, my my quick example is when we when we talked out in Chicago, Chief Fredrickson said, Yeah, I haven't been through what these people have been through. I mean, you get Chris Gallon and Chris Fields and, and Doug Mond yeah. and Raul, and they're telling you, like, here's here's what brought me to this chair tonight. And and Frank's like, Yeah, that's I don't have those traumas. I feel actually, you know, like an imposter sitting up here. And they're looking at him like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, you're the chief of police. It was your guy who died. Yeah. And it was another one of your guys. How many times has that happened? And the next night he started telling a story that he was given the honor of closing that casket on Sean. Wow. And they all looked at him and said, are you freaking kidding me? Wow. I could never have done that. I would, he said, I'll never forget that moment. That's, wow. that's trauma. That's something. That yes. was his officer. Yes. Yeah. So they're like, <laughs> and wow. they beat yeah. him up. Like, yeah, dude, don't ever tell us that you, you don't belong up here. You definitely belong up here. I mean, I've never done anything like that. So that's, yeah. that's important to, to your, um, to the training program. So we have a training program and it's okay if I just jump into this quick, yeah. I just yeah. briefly about it. Yes. It's important because there are so many, everybody's going to bring a training program. Um, what I wanted to do was have first responders, and this was Doug Monda's idea years and years. Oh, did I say idea? That's a Boston freaking accent. Huh? <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> Throw that. Yeah. Get rid of the R over here and put it on a freaking sentence. Uh. That a vowel. Um, <laughs> so it's a conversation that came. I was having with Doug Mond over at survive first. And he said, you know, if, if you ever want to have like a therapy session and you need somebody to be a sacrificial lamb, I'll do it. We're like, okay, cool. So uh, he planted the seed. So we created a, a, a training program modules because I know you all have to go through X amount of hours of training per year and so many hours have to be around mental health. You take the junior guy in the department, tell him or her to sit down and take our training for us, you know, come back out when you're done. Um, I wanted to create something that was unique. So it was it was developed by first responders. What are the, the major topics that you want to cover? You want to talk about? And then we gave it and they wrote it all out. We worked through, we developed the, we developed the program or the plan. And then I gave it to a bunch of clinicians who had been working for at least eight years with, with people from this community. And they put it in clinical speak and said, okay, here's what they need to know and how we would present it. And then I grabbed a different group of first responders and we put them all in a room together, fire, LE, dispatch, EMT. Okay. Now, how do, how do we take what these clinicians are saying and put it in first responder speak so they're going to listen to what the hell you just said and we'll break it down into like 20-minute to 30-minute modules. We got to that. took us a good year and a half, almost two years. And then we went down to Florida and we filmed it. So it's Raul Rivas sitting in a chair talking about the Pulse nightclub shooting. Yeah. It's the bodies on the floor, but it's the cell phones. It's the cell phones when everything, when all the gunfire was over and, and the bodies are on the floor and there's blood on the plate and everything calm, 
the cell phone started going off. Yeah. That's a trigger, right? So the person sitting across from like, well, yeah, of course, here's what's happened. Frontal cortex, your frontal fight or flight. And she goes into explaining in normal speak to them. And everybody in the room is nodding their head like, oh, yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. So you can actually see his shoulders drop. Mm. Like, oh, so here, how's we, here's one way we could address that. And she went into something. So we did that with 12 different modules for, um, for first response. So coping skills, awareness, addictions, grief and loss, ownership, um, suicide, resiliency, families. So uh, each one of yes. those modules is just conversations with the first responder, giving a real life example and the clinician who's worth listening to having a conversation. Yeah. And it's brilliant. It's we're editing wow. it right now, but it's brilliant because you have, we have people like, well, who you trust. You listen to the guy talk. I mean, yeah. right? he, he's fantastic. Yes. Same thing. Chris, Chris feels yeah. you trust these folks. Uh, Brock Bevel out in, uh, out in Arizona, um, an addict, you know, he was undercover, deep undercover for years, uh, ended up getting a, having a, an addiction. And fortunately he was able to come out the other side of it, but he talks about that stuff yes. and he's one of you. So it's, we put a face to it. It's listening to your brothers and sisters, have a conversations about, I know what it's like to be shot. I know what it's like to kill somebody. I know what it's like to pull, you know, all the experiences that you've had. Um, how do I deal with that? And just having a conversation with a normal person in a non-threatening environment, shooting the breeze. Wow. It's really, really cool. Wow. Yeah. So, when, is, when is that going to be out, Kevin? So um, we, the trailer, I'm going to send you, uh, I'm going to send you the trailer. I just signed up. I say trailer. This is how we're going to get, again, because I'm not one of you, Jay, right? So I send something to a department. They're like, who's this guy? Um it, it's a piece like here's what we're talking about. Just take a look at this four minute clip. Here's what we're talking about. You recognize the people, SWAT team, you know, sniper one, um, having conversations. So I've got that. I'll send it to you so you can take a look at it. I'd love um, that. We're doing it. We again because cats in the trees and one a life saving badge every time they narcane somebody. We had to. The training is not universal for first responders. This segment over here is for fire service. Yep. And these ones over here are for law enforcement because mm. while similar, still different. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. In all 12 modules are the same. They're not the same. You know, there might be nine that are the same, but the other three are unique to your field, your specific field. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you folks asked us for. So, um, wow. Yeah, it, it's all first responders created by first responders, culturally competent uh, clinicians that put this together. Um, I'm going to send you that. We're we're hoping to have at least the first three modules of each one done by the end of Q124 um, and start rolling them out. Um, the documentary. I'm going to send you my documentary so you can take a look at it. I mean, I'd we're having a conversation. That. Yeah, I want you to see what it is. Um, it's intense. I mean, you've gone through life experiences, but it's intense. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I didn't make it palatable for the general population because yeah. it's not for them. Yeah. Um, it, it's not for them. We do have a, a truncated version. That's how I get sponsorships. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, we have a, we have a bunch of really, really big donors uh, and we need that because I made a promise to the folks in the documentary that an organization's inability to pay for us to come out there won't prevent us from showing up. If, if what we're doing is to save lives, it's not about dollars. Yeah. So, and especially with what, what is it 
um, Jay, somewhere like 80% of, um, I think the number is somewhere in the, the high 70, low 80% of fire departments are voluntary. So where are they going to get the resources to bring us out there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, our, absolutely. Our sponsors yeah. are going to cover that cost. That's wow. how we're doing it. Wow. So we can make sure to get it out there. I'll, I'll send it over to you. You can take a look at it. Um, oh, we'd love yeah. that. We're privileged. Yeah. It's yeah. a privilege. Love Thank to you. get your feedback on it. I'll send you the training. Um, that little piece of the training as well. You get that, get that feedback from you as well. Uh, I think it's going, I think it's going well. Um, so seven years from now, as you had asked, um, yes. I think it's time. I'm going to focus primarily myself. I'm going to step away from the day to day here at the end of the next year, the next uh, calendar year. Um, I'm bringing in the next generation of leaders. I don't um I don't draw a salary. I haven't drawn a salary in seven years. Every penny that gets donated goes to the cause. Um, I pay all of my own expenses. Uh, I'm fortunate to be able to do that. So I, I want to continue to do that. Um, I want to oh. focus on marketing and getting this out there to the first mm. responder community. Yeah. Uh, but I also, we're going to start working on um, another documentary. Like now all of a sudden I'm a documentarian um, <laughs> on athletes, you know, oh, wow. because who are, who are you? When you get a career-ending injury, yeah. who are you when the Olympics are over? Some yes. dudes used to swim fast, yeah. right? Yeah. So what? And and I've had great conversations with a lot of New England athletes um, when their career is over. When you're a fi- you're a firefighter. When your career is over, unfortunately, you had a you had a great plan following up. But who are you when you're no longer wearing the the badge or the patch? Yeah, with your identity. Absolutely. And that's, so I want to help. Yeah. There's high high rates of suicide in our in our high school, college, pro. So we're going to start doing that uh, a little bit, start doing some filming of that. Um, but I'm going, to, I'm going to step away and just manage my board of directors. Uh, we're in a transitional phase. We're going from, like I said, I just put my buddy's name down and said, you're on my board. <laughs> and now we, we yeah, he's still on my board to this day. But wow. now we're getting calls from people Um CEOs of major Fortune 500 companies saying, "I'd like to talk to you about joining your board," um, because they care about what we're doing. Mm. So uh, I'll step away. I'll get some young blood in here with fresh ideas. Me showing up on a college campus to talk about mental health. There's like a 40 year gap between what the world looks like through eye, you know, the, the set of eyes. So I'm, I'm stepping back, um, focus on first responder uh, resilience, our training program, disseminating a documentary, and then creating the next the next piece. And then uh, hopefully uh, my wife will be ready to retire in the next you know, three or four years or so. And we can both um, go enjoy some, some time. Yeah. Go, yeah. Uh, go play awesome. some golf. <laughs> Kevin, I, yeah. I love this conversation so much and I feel such a privilege of having you here with us tonight and, you know, talking with us and sharing your whole journey, you know, about yourself, which I think is also very important. You know, um, you said, oh, no one ever asked me that question before. Um, but uh, I think it's important to share that. And it comes yeah. true very authentically. Um, and I can I can tell yeah. that coming from you. Right, Jay? Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, thank you. You know, thank you. Uh, sorry, you go ahead. Um, I want to make sure that I share with you about Nick and I have, I have a lot of compassion for first responders and because of, I mean, I worked hospitals for a lot of years, uh, you know, floated the ERs and, and did that stuff. Um, but my son overdosed, he was in Worcester. He overdosed a pretty significant overdose in December of 21. Um, he was in the basement of his, uh, his cousin's house 
uh, he had been living in the back of a rented U-Haul um, that he rented and then just never returned. But um, so Nick overdosed. He also had, he suffered a massive stroke at the time because of the extensive abuse. Um, paramedics had to intubate him at the scene. That's how significant it was, Jay. Right. Yep. So you know it was a it was a big thing. Um, Nick was in a coma for quite a you know quite a while. Um, uh, UMass Medical. Uh, this past when he got out, now he had been in multiple. Um, rehabs, some of the best in the country, mm-hmm. unsuccessful. Uh, and it doesn't, and I think it's important for your listeners to know, like, how do we help them? How do we help them? It's, we can do as much as we possibly can, but only one person's going to do the work, right? Yeah. We can't do the work for them. It's yeah. that old adage, you can't work harder than they are yeah. at something. Yes. Well, uh, we, I brought him to um, a treatment facility in South Florida near his sister uh, down in West Palm Beach. Nicholas just passed two years clean and sober. Oh, he, uh, thank God. So I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. You stalled, Daniel. I, 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 I still get emotional about it because I didn't expect this day to ever come. I yeah. never expected to go golf with my son. I never expected to go oh. clothes shopping with him. Oh, yeah. my goodness. So Nicholas, uh, he is crushing it he's a, a phenomenal Ooh. uncle to his nephew he eats dinner at his sister's house like five times a week she's a fantastic sister they're thick as thieves and he got to the point in his in his recovery after 20 months in a uh, sober living facility where karen said come move into our house come live with us get out of there wow oh. yeah and that that's a far cry from he did this to you and, and I'm upset with him. Now it's, hey, Nick, come spend Christmas at our house with us. Yeah. It's a big change. So wow. it's, it's, there is there is hope, but I recognize that it was paramedics. It was fire service. It was all of the people in that chain that could have easily said, there's 100,000 overdose deaths this year. You're just going to be another one because I'm tired of freaking responding to this. Yeah. But they didn't. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They didn't give up on Wow. No. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. What a good wonderful, stuff. wonderful, good stuff. And I could see you were getting emotional there too. Um, because, yes, when you share that story, it's also important to to also share, you know, you started off sharing about how you got into this yeah. and how he is able to turn his life around, right, and, yeah. and make something um, of it, right, and, and actually participate in his life now, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's close, It's closing that loop because folks who are in the space that Jay and first responders are in don't sell, they seldom get to see the results of yeah. their efforts. Yeah. You don't get to see because they move on to the next thing and then the next thing and yeah. the next thing. Yeah. Whatever happened to that person? Well, that person, just like um, me, me reaching out to Dr. Dingman to tell him, as a result of him saving me and helping me manage through, I've given away $3.2 million in scholarships. We yeah. have programs across the country we're doing documentaries we're helping save lives yeah. it all started with him mm. and a decision he made so nicholas doing what he's doing right now and being a brother and a son and uh, an uncle is because a paramedic didn't say uh, or the team at the er didn't say i'm so tired of these overdose you know he's an addict let yeah. him freaking go it's yeah. one less person we're gonna have to deal with tomorrow yeah they didn't yeah so, that's uh, not always the case clearly so. yeah Oh, it's yeah, mm-hmm. it is uh, absolutely amazing wow. stuff. And, you know, wow. Kevin, what I what I have to say to you is that as a parent who's lost a first responder, um, you know, to suicide, 
I, I don't believe, you know, any first responder who takes their own life, die, like dies by their own hands, want to die. I think they just want to end their pain like the way you felt when you picked up that phone, you know, thank God you did. Um, so I, I thank you for doing all that you do on, on behalf of all the parents that would want to thank you um, for losing a first responder because, you know, that's why we're doing, that's what brought us together, right? Yeah. Us just having a conversation yeah. um, about, you know, our, our own experiences and, and connecting in that way. And, and many first responders come in and talk and, and I guess they feel maybe it's a safe environment for them to be able to share or someone that might understand um, a little yeah. bit about what they're going through, um, which sort of inspired me to sort of say, hey, do you want to do this podcast with me? And, um, <laughs> and he said, I'm in. And um, sure so, <laughs> yeah, and, um, and we can only move forward with what we're doing, right? And... Um, Right. And again, if it's one person that listens to this interview, um, which I'm sure it won't be only one person, but if it's one person that says, I, I'm going to get help or I'm going to um, just planting that seed right in their head yeah. to say, you know, I'm going to do this. And a, and a family member, right, a spouse or a mother and father listening is going to say, wow, this foundation is doing this and, you know, it's going to make better. We might not see it, but the future generations are going to be able right. to benefit from what you're doing, and the foundation is doing so. Ah, oh, I love. It. I Thank wish I could give. You, I wish I could give you a hug through the camera. Yeah. Um, maybe one day we'll meet in person yeah. and be able to you're do. You're only so. up the street from us. You're only. You're just up the street. Yeah, you know, I'm down. In, I'm down in Falmouth. Yeah, well, maybe so, you'll have uh, to come up and have a good scone up Mar Riley's Cafe. You never know, right? I'm definitely going to do that. <laughs> for sure. But Kevin, we appreciate for you being here. Um, I probably took over a huge amount of your time tonight, but we're very grateful. And uh, I won't forget this for sure. Kevin took myself and Linda on a journey through his own struggle what got him through the darkness, and how during that time he found the strength to pick up the phone to ask for help. And help is what he got. Kevin began his mission with a passion and purpose to change the way that we treat mental health struggles. The inspiration was his own son, Nick. This all led to starting up the Quell Foundation, a foundation that puts its focus on education, awareness, prevention, and first response. We hear his passion. We hope that you do too, because it is that very passion that will continue to bring light to so many first responders who are struggling. If you're a first responder and you need some help, please reach out and talk to someone. If you don't know where to start, you can call one of the Hope Lines at 781-817-3357 or 617 657 9108. We can help guide you to resources that can help. Till next time. Till next time.